Chapter Sixteen of The Red Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan. The Red Planet by William J. Locke. Chapter Sixteen. Boyce left Wellingsford that afternoon, and for many months I heard little about him. His astonishing avowal had once more turned topsy-turvy my conception of his real nature. I had to reconstruct the man, a very complicated task. I had to reconcile in him all kinds of opposites, the lusty brute and the sentimental lover, the physical coward and the bearsark hero, the man with hell in his soul and the debonair gentleman. After a vast deal of pondering, I arrived not very much nearer a solution of the problem. The fact remained, however, that I found myself in far closer sympathy with him than ever before. After all that he had said, I should have had a heart of stone if it had not been stirred to profound pity. I had seen an instance both of his spellbound cowardice and of his almost degrading craft in extrication. That in itself repelled me. But it lost its value in the light that he had cast on the never-ceasing torment that consumed him. At any rate, he was at death grips with himself, strangling the devils of fear and dishonor with a hand relentlessly certain. He appeared to me a tragic figure warring against a doom. At first I expected every day to receive an agonized message from Mrs. Boyce announcing his death. Then, as is the way of humans, the keenness of my apprehension grew blunted, until, at last, I took his continued existence as a matter of course. I wrote him a few friendly letters, to which he replied in the same strain, and so the months went on. Looking over my diary, I find that these months were singularly uneventful as far as the lives of those dealt with in this chronicle were concerned. In the depths of our souls we felt the long-drawn-out agony of the war, with its bitter humiliations, its heart-rending disappointments. In our daily meetings one with another we cried aloud for a great voice to awaken the little folk in Great Britain from their selfish lethargy, the little folk in high office, in smug burgessdom, in seditious factory and shipyard. There were months of sordid bargaining between all sections of our national life, in the murk of which the glow of patriotism seemed to be eclipsed. In the meantime, the heroic millions from all corners of our far-flung empire were giving their lives on land and sea, gaily and gallantly, too often in tragic futility, for the ideals to which the damnable little folk at home were blind. The little traitorous folk who gambled for their own hands in politics. The little traitorous folk who put the outworn shibboleths of a party before the war-cry of an empire. The little traitorous folk who strove with all their power to starve our navy of ships, our ships of coal, our men in the trenches of munitions, our armies of men, our country of honor, all these will one day be mercilessly arraigned at the bar of history. The plains of France, the steeps of Gallipoli, the swamps of Mesopotamia, the seven seas, will give up their dead as witnesses. We thought bitterly of all these things, and thought of them with raging impotence, but the even tenor of our life went on. We continued to do our obscure and undistinguished work for the country. It became a habit, part of the day's routine. We almost forgot why we were doing it. The war seemed to make little real difference in our social life. The small town was pitch black at night. Prices rose. Small economies were practiced. Labor was scarce. Fewer young men out of uniform were seen in the streets and neighboring roads and lanes. Groups of wounded from the hospital in their uniform of deep blue jean with red ties and khaki caps gave a note of actuality to the streets. Otherwise, there were few signs of war. Even the troops who hitherto swarmed about the town had gradually been removed from billets to a vast camp of huts some miles away, and appeared only sporadically about the place. I missed them and the stimulus of their presence. 
had brought me into closer touch with things. Marigold, too, pined for more occupation for his one critical eye than was afforded by the local volunteers. He grew morose, sick of a surfeit of newspapers. If he could have gone to France and got through to the firing line, I'm sure he would have dug a little trench all to himself and defied the Germans on his own account. In November, Colonel Dacre was brought home gravely wounded to a hospital for officers in London. A nurse gave me the news in a letter in which she said that he had asked to see me before an impending hazardous operation. I went up to town and found him wrecked almost beyond recognition. As we were the merest of acquaintances with nothing between us save our common link with boys, I feared lest he should desire to tell me of some shameful discovery. But his gay greeting and the brave smile, pathetically grotesque through the bandages in which his head was wrapped, reassured me. Only his eyes and mouth were visible. "'It's worth while being done in,' said he. "'It makes one feel like a sultan. "'You have just to clap your hands and say, "'I want this, and you've got it. "'I have a good mind to say to this dear lady, "'Fetch their gracious majesties from Buckingham Palace, "'and I'm sure they'd be here in a tick. "'It's awfully good of you to come, Meredith.' "'I signed to Marigold, who had carried me into the ward "'and set me down on a chair, "'and to the sister, the dear lady of Dacre's reference, "'to withdraw, and after a few sympathetic words "'I asked him why he had sent for me.' "'I'm broken to bits all over,' he replied. "'The doctors here say they never saw such a blooming mess-up of flesh pretending to be alive. "'And as for talking, they just as soon expect speech from a jellyfish squashed by a steamroller. "'If I do get through, I'll be a helpless crock all my days. "'I funked it till I thought of you. "'I thought the sight of another fellow who's gone through it and stuck it out might give me courage. "'I've had my wife here. We're rather fond of one another, you know. "'My God, what brave things women are!' If she had broken down all over me, I could have risen to the occasion. But she didn't, and I felt a cowardly worm. I had a brave wife, too, said I, and for a few moments we talked shyly about the women who had played sacred parts in our lives. Whether he was comforted by what I said, I don't know. Probably he only listened politely. But I think he found comfort in a sympathetic ear. Presently he turned on to Boyce, the real motive of his summons. He repented much that he had told and written to me, his long defamation of the character of a brother officer had lain on his conscience, and lately he had at last met Boyce personally, and his generous heart had gone out to the man's soldierly charm. I never felt such a slanderous brute in my life as when I shook him by the hand. You know the feeling, how one wants to get behind a hedge and kick oneself. Kick oneself, he repeated faintly. Then he closed his eyes and his lips contracted in pain. The sister, who had been watching him from a distance, came up. He had talked enough. It was time to go. But at the announcement he opened his eyes again, and with an effort recovered his gaiety. The whole gist of the matter lies in the postscript. Like a woman's letter, I must have my postscript. Very well, two more minutes. Merciless dragon, said he. She smiled and left us. The dearest angel bar one in the world, said he. What were we talking about? Colonel Boyce. Oh yes, forgive me. My head goes F.U.T. now and then. It's idiotic not to be able to control one's brain. The point is this. I may peg out. I know this operation they're going to perform is just touch and go. I want to face things with a clear conscience. I've convinced you, haven't I, that there wasn't a word of truth in that South African story? If ever it crops up, you'll scotch it like a venomous snake. The ethics of my answer I leave to the casuist. I am an old-fashioned Church of England person, as I am so mentally constituted that I am unable to believe cheerfully in nothing. I believe in God and Jesus Christ, and accept the details of doctrine as laid down in the Thirty-Nine Articles. For liars I have the apocryphal condemnation, yet I lied without the faintest rippling qualm of conscience. My dear fellow, said I stoutly, 
There's not the remotest speck of truth in it. You haven't a second occasion to worry. That's all right, he said. The sister approached again. Instinctively I stretched out my hand. He laughed. No good. You must take it as gripped. Goodbye, old chap. I bade him goodbye, and Marigold wheeled me away. A few days afterwards they told me that this gay, gallant, honourable, sensitive gentleman was dead. Although I had known him so little, it seemed that I knew him very intimately, and I deeply mourned his loss. I think this episode was the most striking of what I may term personal events during those autumn months. Of Randall Holmes we continued to hear in the same mysterious manner. His mother visited the firm of solicitors in London through whom his correspondence passed. They pleaded ignorance of his doings and professional secrecy as to the disclosure of his whereabouts. In December he ceased writing altogether, and twice a week Mrs. Holmes received a formal communication from the lawyers to the effect that they had been instructed by her son to inform her that he was in perfect health and sent her his affectionate greetings. Such news of this kind as I received I gave to Betty, who passed it on to Phyllis Gedge. Of course my intimacy with my dear Betty continued unbroken. If the unmarried Betty had a fault, it was a certain sweet truculence, a pretty self-assertiveness which sometimes betrayed intolerance of human foibles. Her widowhood had, in a subtle way, softened these little angularities of her spiritual contour, and bodily the curves of her slim figure had become more rounded. She was no longer the young Diana of a year ago. The change into the gracious woman who had passed through the joy and the sorrow of life was obvious even to me, to whom it had been all but imperceptibly gradual. After a while she rarely spoke of her husband. The name of Leonard Boyce was never mentioned between us. With her as with me, the weeks ate up the uneventful days and the months the uneventful weeks. In her humdrum life the falling away of Mrs. Tufton loomed catastrophic. For four months Mrs. Tufton shone splendid as the wife of the British warrior. The Wellingsford Hospital rang with her praises and glistened with her scrubbing brush. She was the admirable Crichton of the institution. What with men going off to the war and women going off to make munitions, there were never-ending temporary gaps in the staff, and there was never a gap that Mrs. Tufton did not triumphantly fill. The pride of Betty, who had wrought this reformation, was simply monstrous. If she had created a real live angel, wings and all, out of the dustbin, she could not have boasted more arrogantly. Being a member of the hospital committee, I must confess to a bemused share in the popular enthusiasm. And was I not one of the original discoverers of Mrs. Tufton? When Marigold, inspired doubtless by his wife, from time to time suggested disparagement of the incomparable woman, I rebuked him for an arrant scandal-monger. There had been a case or two of drunkenness at the hospital. Wounded soldiers had returned the worse for liquor, an almost unforgivable offence. Not that the poor fellows desired to get drunk. A couple of pints of ale or a couple of glasses of whiskey will set swimming the head of any man who has not tasted alcohol for months. But to a man with a septic wound or trench nephritis or smashed-up skull, alcohol is poison, and poison is death, and so it is sternly forbidden to our wounded soldiers. They cannot be served in public houses. Where then did the hospital defaulters get their drink? If I was you, sir, said Marigold, I'd keep an eye on that there Mrs. Tufton. I instantly annihilated him or should have done so had his expressionless face not been made of non-inflammable timber. He said, very good, sir, but there was a damnably ironical and insubordinate look in his one eye. Gradually the lady lapsed from grace. She got up late and complained of spasms. She left dustpan and brush on a patient's bed. She wrongfully interfered with the cook, insisting until she was forcibly ejected from the kitchen on throwing lettuces into the Irish stew. 
Finally, one Sunday afternoon, a policeman wandering through some waste ground, a deserted brickfield behind Flowery End, came upon an unedifying spectacle. There were Madame and an elderly Irish soldier sprawling blissfully comatose, with an empty flask of gin and an empty bottle of whiskey lying between them. They were taken to the hospital and put to bed. The next morning, the lady, being sober, was summarily dismissed by the matron. Late at night she rang and battered at the door, clamoring for admittance, which was refused. Then she went away, apparently composed herself to slumber in the roadway of the pitch-black high street, and was killed by a motor-car. And that, bar the funeral, was the end of Mrs. Tufton. From her bereaved husband, with whom I at once communicated, I received the following reply. Dear Sir, Yours to hand announcing the accidental death of my wife, which I need not say I deeply regret. You will be interested to hear that I have been offered a commission in the Royal Fusiliers, which I am now able to accept. In view of the same, any expense to which you may be put to give my late wife honorable burial, I shall be most ready to defray. With many thanks for your kindness in informing me of this unfortunate circumstance, I am, yours faithfully, John P. Tufton. I think he's a horrid, callous, cold-blooded fellow, cried Betty when I showed her this epistle. After all, said I, she wasn't a model wife. If the fatal motor-car hadn't come along, the probability is that she would have received poor Tufton on his next leave, with something even more deadly than a poker. Now and again the fates have brilliant inspirations. This was one of them. Now you see the virago-clogged Tufton is a free man, able to accept a commission and start a new life as an officer and a gentleman. I think you're perfectly odious, odious and cynical, she exclaimed wrathfully. I think, said I, that a living warrior is better than a dead disappointment. You don't understand, she stormed. If I didn't love you, I could rend you to pieces. It is because I do understand, my dear, said I, enjoying the flashing beauty of her return to Artemisian attitudes, that I particularly characterized the dear lady as a disappointment. I think, she said, in dejected generalization, the working out of the whole scheme of the universe is a disappointment. The high originators of the scheme seem to bear it pretty philosophically, I rejoined. So why shouldn't we? They're gods and we're human, said Betty. Precisely, said I, and oughtn't it to be our ideal to approximate to the divine attitude? Again Betty declared that I was odious. From her point of view? No, that is an abuse of language. There are mental states in which a woman has no point of view at all. She wanders over an ill-defined circular area of vision. That is why, in such conditions, you can never pin a woman down with a shaft of logic and compel her surrender as you can compel that of a mere man. We went on arguing, and after a time I really did not know what I was arguing about. I advanced and tried to support the theory that on the whole the progress of humanity as represented by the British Empire in general, and the about-to-be Lieutenant Tufton in particular, was advanced by the opportune demise of an unfortunately balanced lady. From her point, or rather her circular area of vision, Perhaps my dear Betty was right in declaring me odious. She hated to be reminded of the intolerable goosiness of her swan. She longed for comforting, corroborative evidence of essential swaniness for her own justification. In a word, the poor dear girl was sore all over with mortification, and wherever one touched her, no matter with how gentle a finger, one hurt. I would have trusted that woman, she cried tragically, with a gold mine or a distillery. We trusted her with something more valuable, my dear said I, our guileless faith in human nature. Anyhow, we'll keep the faith undamaged. She smiled. That's considerably less odious. Nothing more could be said. We let the unfortunate subject rest in peace forever after. These two episodes, the death of poor Reggie Dacre and the Tufton catastrophe, 
are the only incidents in my diary that are worth recording here. Christmas came and went, and we entered on the new year of 1916. It was only at a date in the middle of February, a year since I had driven to Wellings Park to hear the tragic news of Oswald Fenimore's death, that I find an important entry in my diary. End of chapter 16 Recording by Sean Michael Hogan, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada